This is a hat trick podcast. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Do you remember your sex education? Was it helpful to you? Was it filled with scientific information rather than real, practical advice? I'm Diggory Waite, and this is The Real Sex Education. Each week, I'll be joined by a guest. We'll impart our own sex wisdom, ask our own sex questions, and we'll go over all the things they don't teach you in school. To bring this all together, though, we'll need an expert. A sexpert, if you will. But the only sex and relationship therapist I know is my mum. Hello, mum. Hello, Diggs. In this episode... We speak to Dr. Leila Hussain about FGM and its effects. The physical trauma we can clearly see, but the psychological trauma needs more support. The true intention behind those who perform FGM. The fundamental reason why myself and 200 million women are now living with this is to control our sexuality. And Leila's work with FGM survivors. For me, one thing I'm very proud of in my work is giving women hope that they can have an orgasm again. Like, that's so important. Hello and welcome to The Real Sex Education. I'm Diggory Waite and as ever I'm joined by accredited sex and relationship therapist Kate Campbell. Hello mum. Hello Diggs. Today we're going to be talking about FGM, female genital mutilation, otherwise known as FGC or female genital cutting. You've probably guessed already from that that it's a serious subject and there will be reference to sexual assault and bodily harm. So if that may be triggering or cause any distress but you'd still like some real sex education, why not listen to one of our previous episodes? Recently we spoke to Nathaniel Cole about his masculinity workshops with young men in schools. We spoke to Alice Olivia Scarlett about what it means to be asexual and Dr. Jean David told us about the effects of testosterone deficiency on both men and women. For those of you still here, we're going to be talking about FGM. FGM comes in many forms, but it often involves the cutting of the clitoris and labia and sometimes surgical sewing up of the labia as well. For many young women and girls, this is a rite of passage. The family is often present on the day. There's sometimes gifts and a party thrown afterwards. It's not only fine and normal, but it's a cause for celebration. Why this happens, we'll go into with our guest later on, who also shares some of the staggering statistics that show just how many people FGM affects. Definitely, yes. It's happening to lots and lots of women, including women and girls in this country. Mm, which I think a lot of people don't realise. I think mm. uh, we'll get into it later, but I mean, there's a, there's a racial element to it as well. But I think people think it's countries in Africa you know, far away, but mm. actually it is a lot closer to home for our UK listeners and American listeners. Well, it's in some surprising places yeah. that a lot of people don't know about, you know, people where people go on holiday and mm. things like that. Mm. Yeah. Exactly. And it really brings it home. So without further ado, let's speak to today's guest, psychotherapist, activist and campaigner, Dr. Leila Hussain, OBE. How are you doing today, Leila? Hi. Uh, do you know, this is one of my favourite podcast introductions. Like I... <laughs> Yes. I love it. I love it. I'm a mother and son talking about sex. It's brilliant. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. I'm so it. glad. Well, that's the that's this is the best intro we've had ever. Mm. I think now. <laughs> that. That's amazing. It. <laughs> it works both ways. So, 
Thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's get right into it. Um, mm. For people at home who maybe uh, aren't aware, can you tell us in your own words uh, who, who you are and what you do? Yeah. So as you said, my name is Leila. I guess the work that I do in my journey started over nearly 19 years ago now. So my, my daughter's turned 18 last year, August. She's going to be 19 this year. So when she was born, it was the first time a health professional actually asked me, hey, can I just check? Um, how was your birth like and I said the birth wasn't that bad it was three days from hell but it was the pregnancy that was horrible mm. anyway as the nurse is asking me these questions she asked that question that no one's asked me in years she goes oh no can I just check Ms. Hussein I know you're from Somalia uh, have you undergone a practice called female genital mutilation and my response was very flippant oh I'm like yes you know but I didn't have the worst type um, so already she's picked up this on this as an alarm bell. So my daughter's like two months old at this point. Mm. Um, and it's the first time someone's asked me. So at the age of seven, I don't like to say undergone or practiced because I was violated. I think that's, that's where I got to now. Mm. I experienced a violation called female genital mutilation, which is when the female genitalia is partially or totally removed and the remaining skin is pulled together to stitch. And this happens because for multiple reasons, which is... People say it's cultural, religion. They say it's clean, it looks beautiful. But the fundamental reason why myself and 200 million women are now living with this is to control our sexuality. That's why we were cut. It was to control our bodies. Mm-hmm. It happened at the age of seven. I'm asked for the first time at the age of 22. So you can imagine the gap in between that's happened. And what was so mm-hmm. scary about that whole experience at the beginning, you know, I was pregnant. I had a midwife. You know, I was being examined many, many times. Not one person said, hey, wait a minute, your body part looks a bit different. No one asked that question. And that triggered a lot of anger within me because it was like, wait a minute. But also what triggered me more than anything else, it was this nurse that showed me how the female genitalia even looked like for the first time. I went to school in the UK. I went to school in Italy in my early childhood. Not one person, not one class room told us what the female genitalia even looks like. We were told, don't mm. get pregnant. That's all I got told in school. So I didn't even know what the hell was taken away from me. Wow, yeah. So it was really the anger that fueled my campaigning around this. But I am very grateful to the nurse. Uh, her, name, her name is Jennifer Bourne. And I ended up working with Jennifer for many years. Still a good friend of mine to today. Mm. But it's a reminder what it's like to create a safe space for somebody without judgment. And then expressed in it because I didn't think that nothing there was anything wrong with me because all the women in my family experienced this mm-hmm. so now I'm coming out saying hey actually this is wrong you know and let's mm-hmm. not call it cultural practice and I think I mean there's been a lot of camp there was there's been a big campaign in the UK for many many years but the the, the language has always been this is a cultural this is traditional nobody was saying how dare adults touch a child's genitalia? That's the way I framed it in my head. And I'm like, mm. it should be very simple to deal with this. Actually, it's not that hard. So I ended up campaigning against this for till now. I'm still, campaigning. I'm still fighting this till today. But that led me, I had to go to therapy. Through the whole process, Jennifer actually ended up working with Jennifer. She made sure I was in therapy because, you know, I'm constantly talking about what I experienced. Like even now mm. I'm reliving that moment again so therapy was something that was introduced to me quite early on in my career but it's something I actually enjoyed I mean it was hard at the beginning every time I went to see a therapist I had to do like a little presentation of FGM and I didn't want to do that anymore Mm. I didn't want other women experiencing that because it changed our relationship you know from the client to uh, the therapist so when I qualified 
becoming a psychotherapist. I set it up, the Dahlia Project, which is a counseling service. It was the first counseling service for FGM survivors in Europe, which is set up in 2013. I'm the founder of that clinic, which is still ongoing, still, still there. So yeah, so that's, you know, when I say I wear a couple of hats, that's what I meant. Um, <laughs> but I'm also, I'm, I'm a mom to an 18-year-old daughter. She really is the muse of the work that I do. Because for me, it was never about, my work has never been about just ending FGM. It's understanding why FGM happened, which is a patriarchal system that wants to control the female body and female sexuality. So that's what we need to be discussing. Mm. I don't want to, you know, for me, it's like I don't want to talk to religious leaders or community leaders. Mm. Because, you know, we keep giving them power. And I'm like, no, no, no. There's a system here that allows for this to happen. Let's tackle that system. Mm. That's one of the questions, I think, maybe for listeners to try and understand this a bit more. So I think there's two things I want to I want to delve a bit deeper. We've sort of touched on this, but do we know how this started? Why, mm. you know, obviously, like because there's lots of different reasons for it. That's mm. one of the problems as well, is people talk about the religious aspect, but then it's not just religious, because all, isn't it most religions? All religions, this, right? all religions practice yeah. it. Yeah. Even so non-believers. Christian women. Christian, yeah. Ethiopian Jews mm. practice this. Mm. Non-believers, mm. those who are, so the, historically it started in Egypt, so it, it, it was called the pharaonic circumcision. That's what it was called. It was done for two main reasons. One was when the pharaohs went to war, it was for chastity. So it was to keep, so to make sure the wives or the women did not uh, have sex with other men. Mm-hmm. That was one. And there was a belief if you didn't cut the clitoris, it was going to grow the same size as the penis. And that's why they were cut. <laughs> but, but again, do you see the message behind is to control the female sexuality? Mm. I have my own theory on this. I just, I'm like, some guy just felt so bad about himself when he was with a woman and just came up with something like this. Because I, 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 I can't understand. Fundamentally, it comes back to female sexuality. That's why FGM mm-hmm. exists. It's the idea a woman owning her sexuality is so scary to the world. We have to cut their bodies now. Mm. So it's practiced across all religions, all class system. I think there's an assumption this happens to non-educated people. Mm. My, both my grandfathers, you know, were doctors. One chose not to do it to his daughter. So my dad's family didn't actually practice this. Where my mom's family mm. did. But my mom's dad was a doctor. He knew the implications. But he cared more about the patriarchal system he belonged to. That status mm. was more important than ensuring his daughters were healthier. And they had to be married to the right families. You know, I was cut for my future husband. That's who I was cut for. But I, and I suppose at that point, you, you think, well, if I don't do this, yeah. you know, other people I know will look on me as bad, look on my children. And I'm doing of it. Course. Would they even think they may be doing it for their child, for their benefit? Let me tell you, because of my dad's job, we traveled a lot. So we lived between Saudi Arabia and Italy in my early childhood. But when my parents decided we we're going to go to school, we come back to Somalia. I was the kid who didn't know about this. A lot of kids actually know mm. from very early on this is going to happen. We, we, me and my sister didn't. But I remember my first day in school, I was introduced as a diaspora kid. So the kids are already scared of me. And I remember mm. this girl saying, hey, have you had, it's called Gudnin in Somali. So have you had this done? And I said, yeah. She shouted to the whole playground. She goes, hey, we can play with her now. That's when I thought it was okay. That was the moment I thought, oh, this is why your mother did it for you. Because as a seven-year-old, you care about people playing with you. So is that is you will be ostracized. Mm, you won't go to the best schools. If you touch a cup, the cup is considered dirty. It will be thrown away. Like that's how oh you'll be God. seen. So you will be ostracized. So I did think, oh yeah. Okay, I understand why mom did that now. Because the idea of not having 
people to play with was more scarier. Mm. But I think a, a lot of people feel tricked from what I can gather because it's treated like a it's big... Grooming. Absolutely. Mm. And yes, it, you're groomed. And if and some people don't know, and it's treated like a big party, and you think you're going off to have jelly and cake or whatever it is, and you end up, you know, very sick. So what mm. they do the night before, you put henna, you put henna in your hand, they braid your hair, uh, you have a beautiful dress after all the cutting happens. They bring, bring you into this room and you get lots of gifts. And then mm. the three, four-year-old girls walk in. The ones who are not that stage when they're going to be cut walk into this room and thinking, oh, this is nice. They look like little brides. So that's what they're thinking. Little mm. brides with gifts. I remember getting lots of um, toys. I even got a gold watch. And that's where the grooming begins because you're thinking, oh, I want to be treated. Like, and you are treated like a special mm. person. After that day, mm. you are treated different from the other girls. But actually not realizing you've been prepared for marriage. Like, and you're not considered the... Mm a child anymore so from the age of seven i was no longer a child i was a woman oh god i mean statistically you know 200 million women live with this every 11 seconds a girl will be cut so i don't know how many girls will be cut by the time someone listens to this podcast Mm. Uh, so the numbers are quite and and the fact that that's not considered pandemic it horrifies Mm. me it's staggering 200 million people i I tried to put that into some sort of context that would be the eighth biggest country in the world just short of Nigeria's population or the UK, Spain and Germany combined. And when you think about it, this is a global issue. Mm -hmm. And Mm. I think what you touched on there is something really interesting is that I think people think about it as perhaps because in some of the countries that it's happening to and some of and some and Mm -hmm. because it's happening to predominantly black women, Mm -hmm. there's a strong case for it being a racial issue. Absolutely. It is. Oh, 100%. It's it's about race and gender. Because again, globally... Mm. Women's suffering has become normal. When mm. women are suffering, it's like, ah, oh, you know, that's just the way it is. Like, look at any part in the world. The idea of women are not being paid, same as men. You know, look at the rape cases in the UK, domestic, like the fact that women are constantly struggling. But if you're a black and brown woman, it's even worse. And actually, mm. WHO did a research in actually stating the most vulnerable human being globally is the girl African child. Mm-hmm. and FGM mm-hmm. mainly affects that girl yeah so she's already been deprived from everything now we're taking her organs away and a lot of these girls are not just experiencing female genital mutilation but they what we started seeing in our clinic it's a lot of them they've experienced something called breast ironing where their breasts are removed or crushed made flat because it's considered to be a sexual organ so instead of telling men not to rape women mm-hmm. what we're doing is we're removing their body parts I remember one of my difficult assessments I've done on one of my clients because I didn't I, I thought she was just an FGM survivor into like because we ask have you had any other bodily harm you know it, we made it into a like, that became the norm in, in the clinic mm. and she discloses that her, her breasts have been so her genitalia was taken away her breasts and I and I remember walking away that evening on my way home thinking god I I, I, I know the world doesn't like women that much but this is evil I think a lot of people don't realise. I mean, to, I mean, I think a lot do, but people think it doesn't happen in this country yeah. and mm. they don't realise how many people in England and Wales are living with this and that people are taken abroad and that it's, it goes underground. Mm. It's very, very, very shocking. I mean, Harley Street has so many vagina designer clinics now. I think the UK is now the, mo- the second most practised cosmetic surgery is labiaplasty. 
That's crazy to me. It's the second most practiced cosmetic surgery. Yeah. God, that's terrifying. But this is where it's really crazy. You're a white woman. I'm a black woman. I can't do anything. I can't go to a lady plastic clinic because I'm not allowed. I'm I'm actually committing a crime if I go and do it. That's the way the law has been written as well. What? Yeah. Oh my God. So me and my friend actually ended up, we're like, okay, let's go try this. She's blonde, blue eyed. We both requested the same surgery. The poor doctor was like, I can't do it for you because it's illegal for you. The law says I'm not making an informative decision as an African woman. How racist is that? I had no idea about that. That's 100% racist. It's crazy. So I cannot, as an adult woman, go to Harley Street and do anything. As a Somali woman, I cannot go to Harley Street to do anything to my... I don't have that choice. But my white friend or you as a white woman... You will. You can go and do whatever you wish to your labia. I'm not allowed. No, oh. I'd be committing a crime because I'm not making an informative decision. I thought when you said about this before, when you when you said the distinction between when it's having to a black woman, you know, it's not a choice, it's barbaric, etc., etc., mm-hmm. and when it happens to a white woman, it's a choice. All that. I thought that was just you meant culturally and the understanding, no, no, no. which is true, no, but by law. it's written into law. It's law. The law. The law that actually says it. The law lists the countries where it's illegal. So I, I fall under that country, which is Somalia. Wow. But I mean, even even where it is illegal, nothing very much seems to be done no. to enforce the law no. either. Because our politicians are saying we must respect people's culture, religion. I'm like, why? Yeah. Why? Exactly. I'm sorry about my language, but I don't fucking give a shit about people's religion mm-hmm. or culture when we're harming mm-hmm. children. Because for me, fundamentally, that's what we need to call it for what it is. I don't like the term female genital mutilation anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's serious sexual assault against a child. If you look at the yep. legal term, and I remember I was training a group of police officers a couple of years ago in Birmingham. And one of them came up to me because I don't know why this has a different term. Because if I, as a police officer, walked into this in a room and I saw this on a child, he goes, I would record this as a serious sexual assault. Yeah. An adult touching a child's genitalia is sexual assault. Mm. So FGM mm. survivors, we are also survivors of sexual assault with like literally and you it's yeah. and it's done publicly. So like you can't usually when someone is sexually assaulted, it's done privately. We were done publicly. It was done in front of lots of people. And for me, I think I, I think I always say to people, it's not the cutting or pricking, it's grabbing another human being against their will. Yeah. And pinning them. Absolutely. Holding them. To me, that you violated that child in ways that I can't even think that you should be arrested for, in my mm. opinion. I don't even support male circumcision. That's just me. I don't think you should be touching a child's genitalia. Full stop. I think there's something creepy about the whole thing. No. Well, I mean, that, I think some people will be listening to this and they'll see the parallels there. And I th- again, mm. people will say, oh, you know, well, it's a strongly religious thing or, you know, in North American stuff, cultural thing. But it is difficult to argue against cutting someone's genitals when they're a child. That's why these platforms are so important. We need to start framing it that way. Because mm. the moment mm. you put mm. culture and religion on something, somehow it's okay. Doing anything to children, any anything to children, they, they can't consent. A child cannot consent. You know, even like the term. Mm. So mm-hmm. for me, language is a big part of how change happens. Because if by calling it for what it is, then you can deal with the problem. But if you're constantly tiptoeing around the subject by calling it something else, it's serious sexual assault and that's how the police officer explained it to me this is serious sexual assault and i think what's so crazy it's done by people you trust the most the people holding you down exactly. are family members friends so imagine what that does to your relationships through older african women who are tall scare me because my mom's sister held me down who's a big oh. older woman and and mm. and when i was trained as a therapist 
my professor happens to be a Nigerian woman who looked like my auntie. And that's the work we did. Mm. <laughs> mm. I always stayed away yeah. from her. And then we, we started exploring. And she goes, I represent that for you. Mm. And it was interesting that I was scared of the older black women for a long, long time because yeah. it takes me back to that moment. Oh, gosh, it's not surprising. Wow. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you talked there about you sort of reliving that sort of stuff. So thank you mm. for, for doing that. I, I think I, because I think the fact that you do that, not just here, but all over, the, all over, mm. you're in a sense doing what that nurse did for you and um, creating that safe space mm. and informing people about this sort of stuff. So mm. it's, yeah, it's really, really good. So thank you for that on behalf of everyone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Just over my career, genital cutting has become something that I felt so strongly about because there's mm. so little training. And as a sex therapist as well, virtually nothing. So I wrote it into the course that I was mm. teaching, um, but very, very, very difficult to get information and absolutely shocking to find how little is available, how mm. very little. And certainly a bit of therapy and a bit of repair, yep. but not very much about your sexuality and how you reclaim that. Yeah, actually. And that's yeah. so difficult. Mm-hmm. I mean, just just what difference does it, so that people know, what difference does it make to things like menstruation, sex, giving birth and all of that? Oh my God. So I was very lucky. I didn't have the worst type. So I didn't have any issues around menstruation or sex. And I actually had two great parents who, mm. even though my dad didn't know when it happened, or that caused a whole lot of rift with my parents at the time. My mother paid the cutter extra money not to cut us like everybody else. So she can prevent that from us. So those who've had the worst type where everything's closed, they're expected to urinate. I mean, urination, it takes 20 to 30 minutes for them to go and urinate. So, and it causes a lot of urine infections, menstrual cycle. It's the worst. I mean, women, when you have your menstrual cycle, it's already like painful enough. But imagine if it's not coming out. Mm. Like it's coming out in drips. So a lot of girls in school, when I train school teachers, I always say, get your attendance records out. You'll see the girls who have been cut because they're never around for like three, four days during school. Once a month, mm. for a few days of the month, they're missing because they, ca- they literally can't get out of bed. They get really sick. And then intercourse, sex is very painful. And you're ex- with some communities, mm. your husband, your partner is expected to open you up with his own penis basically can't even imagine the pain all these women endure that's why having multiple wives or girlfriends on the side is is actually okay 
because you don't want to be that person he has sex with. You want to be his wife, but you don't mm. want, he's just there to get you pregnant every other year. Like, because you were cut not to be a sensual person. That was the mm. whole point. Mm. Um, you're cut to be a servant person. You're, you're there, yeah, exactly. You're there to carry babies. That's it. Mm. Mm. So the work we do in the clinic is not just therapy. We partnered with sex shops, sex you know, companies who come in and help the women reconnect with their sensual side. You know, a lot of them had mm. to relearn how the vulva looks like. We're like, hey, the actual clitoris mm. organ is still in there. Like it's like brand new information. And for me, one thing I'm very proud of in my work is giving women hope that they can have an orgasm again. Like that's, mm. that's, that's mm. so important because for a lot of them, they, they really thought they couldn't. Mm. So in the clinic, their sensuality, their sexuality is so important. That's part of their healing. Fantastic. So part of their yeah. healing. So important because the, the trauma uh, must be unbelievable, even if it is something that, that happens to everybody you know. It's still a horrific trauma. For some of the women, don't even know it's trauma because when every woman around you is the same, you don't think it's traumatic. Mm. It's when you hear another woman tell you, hey, I'm having a great time. I'm having mm. a great orgasm. It's like, oh, okay. Mm. That's interesting because we do group therapy. So the women are now mm. sharing information. So there's that little bit of hope. Oh, okay. I can actually enjoy this now. I can enjoy this. Mm. It's just scary, isn't it? I mm. mean, well, yeah, because it's, 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 it's the reality we're living through. Yeah, but, it, but it's one that is, is so hidden and so secret. It's just not talked about. It's not taught. It's not talked about. It's not considered part of everyday life. Whereas actually it is when you think how many women in this country have been cut. Mm. It's part of everyday life mm. for all mm. of us. We should all be aware. Because we talk about FG and we have to talk about sex. Mm. Especially as British people, we don't talk about sex. Let's be very honest. Yeah. That's what you well, have but, to... But, but, <laughs> but we talk about sex all the time. And it's so funny. It's, it's, it's the sort of Kate effect, you know, you can talk about it and you should be interested mm. in it, but just don't... It's okay for men to talk about yes, it, but yeah. women... Women are not to talk about it. ...should yeah. do it. Whore in the bedroom, yep. you know, yep. but the rest of the time, demure, mm. private, keep mm. your eyes down, mm -hmm. wear a hat. <laughs> cover up. Um, yep. Cover everything up, mm. yeah. Yep. Don't let anyone know that you're a sexual being. Yeah. Absolutely. I was going to ask that question. How how does education in across like what in this country or elsewhere? How does it treat FDM or does it at all? Is it even mentioned at schools or anything like that? Obviously, just literally just added that to their list in terms of things really? to check for. But did you know in the UK the clitoris organ is not in the biology books? So that's where the problem is. Excuse me. The biology. If you go <laughs> so biology books in the UK, I think Switzerland, different European countries. <sighs> don't have the clitoris organ. You're kidding. I, I was horrified when I found out. So have you heard of Everyday Sexism Project by Laura Bates? Yeah. No, I haven't. No. Oh, my God. So Laura Bates, oh, my God, you have to go and look at that research that she did. She, I've, they, got, I've got her book downstairs, Diggs. Perfect. Okay, you need to go read that. It's literally looking at how the UK education curriculum is anti-women. And that was one of the... Mm. So I, I, was, I interviewed her on stage. That was the first thing she shared. She goes, the, the clitoris organ is not on there. And I said, it can't be. And she goes, Layla, mm. come on. You would have remembered in school if they would have taught us that because they would have said that's a sensitive yeah. part of your body. She goes, do you remember your biology teacher? I'm like, no. And I couldn't mm. believe mm. it. It's not there. No. It used to be there. They removed it after the Second World War because women were having sex with other women while the husbands were... Mm. And that was considered... Very taboo. It was like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Mm. Let's not actually put this on our biology box. It's not on there. 
It's been removed. I remember running home, looking at my daughter's biology book. They only had the urethra and the ovaries. So mm -hmm. yet again, mm -hmm. in school, we've been told, how are we going to carry babies? <laughs> so when you, you're going back to your question around education on FGM, again, I don't need to go and learn specifically about FGM as a young person. If mm -hmm. I know about my body and I'm taught about safeguarding, so if anyone touches me, let alone cut me, I would have reported it. Mm. But if I didn't even know what was taken away, what's the use? Like, I don't, like, literally my own biology books don't have a clitoris organ. That is extraordinary. And I really hadn't thought about that mm. at all. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely extraordinary. But you're right. Yeah. Mm. yeah and we should be seeing nice close up pictures we of genitals, and male ones. and female genitals. Absolutely. And especially, you know, some boys are circumcised and some aren't as well. So they know what they've lost. I spent hours learning about algebra and it's been no use to me since I left school. Mm. But I would have benefited from learning about my body, healthy relationship, Mm. finances would have been great. I'm still scared to look at my bank statements. <laughs> it's like yeah. basic life skills were not taught to us in school. And that's to me, sex and healthy relationship is basic life skills that we need to have. And again, FGM falls under all of that. Young women still don't know what they're reporting because no one's telling them they even have that part of their body. Mm. If there is someone listening to this and, and they've been affected, maybe they've been cut mm. or they know someone that has mm. been or something, what is your advice for them? If you've been through something like this, one, there is hope. You can live a perfectly loving life, but you do need some support. This is why for me, therapy has been so important, really. Mm. Because, you know, the physical trauma we can clearly see, but the psychological trauma needs more support. Hence why, please contact Dahlia Project. You know, we've since COVID, we can see people online. You don't have to physically be there. Mm. So mm. there is support out there. There is hope. I'm a living proof. Many women who have come through our clinic are living proofs of that. So there is, there is a way out of this. That cycle can be broken. It's just, you need to be ready to do that. Mm. And it's free. It's a free clinic. <laughs> you don't have to pay for it. That's wonderful. Oh, that's brilliant. Very I didn't important. know that. That's it's amazing. That's, yeah, 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 yeah. That's so yeah. important. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so please feel free to donate. Yeah. Those who are listening to Dahlia, it's a free clinic. The women don't have mm. to pay. They get counselling. I mean, before COVID, we, we would pay for their transport, childcare, um, mm. location, you know, a little bit of refreshment. It's something that I'm extremely proud of that we can give women this. Mm. Oh, thank you so much. That's really, really helpful. Thank you. This has yeah. been incredible. Thank you so much for coming on. And I will obviously link to the Dahlia project in the in the show notes, etc. Et yes, so please, you. yeah, do donate and do also mm -hmm. uh, get in touch with them as well. For the final time, Dr. Leila Hussein, thank you so, so much. It's been brilliant. Thank you so much, guys. It really has. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. It's the mailbag. Thank you, queries. Thank you so much again to Dr. Leila Hussein for coming on the show, being so open and honest in sharing her story and spreading awareness about FGM and its effects on women and girls around the world. As always, in the show notes, we'll have support links and resources along with a wider reading, listening and watching list for all those interested. Right, mum, it's that time again. Time for some questions that listeners have sent into us on Instagram at RealSexEdPod or via the email podcasts at hattrick.com our first question is from emma mm. and emma says i have orgasmed a few times with other people but i find it very hard to after my husband and i have sex i wait for him to fall asleep and masturbate i've done it for years he doesn't know this am i being unfaithful 
No, but it's a bit sad, isn't it? I wonder what happens that you can't show him what you like. Or Emma, are you too anxious? Are you worried about him feeling let down? Are you faking orgasm for him? What's going on? Mm. I mean, it doesn't sound as though there's great communication here, which is a problem. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with doing this, but it would be probably more fun if you were able to have a really relaxed sexual experience and make love together and orgasm together. I mean, not simultaneously necessarily, but not wait until he's asleep to have your orgasm. Mm, Yeah. I mean, Emma says, you know, I I have orgasm before with people, but I find Mm. it very hard to. So maybe that it's not even just about the husband. It's just about other people in general. I wonder whether it's that thing of letting go when you're on your own, you know, Mm. it's all you. And you don't need to worry about anyone else. So I think that's probably what it is, isn't it? It's like a psychological barrier with someone else. Well, it's a a bit of anxiety. I mean, I think there's a lot of response pressure because I think a lot of people know that their partners find it really exciting when they climax or really, really like to see them aroused. And so there's this feeling, oh, well, I've got to get on and hurry up and do it. Mm. And especially if, the guy, if you're having sex with a man and he's waiting for you to come so that he can, then Mm. probably, you know, there's a bit of pressure to hurry up and get on with it because he might come too soon and then roll over and start snoring. Mm. If we weren't also focused on things like, you know, needing to orgasm and, and the man's orgasm being very important, Mm. you know, it's, it's, it's like once that's happened, we're done. For a lot of mm. couples that mm. they just, that you know, that that's where sex ends. And of course, it doesn't need to. It doesn't need to end with either orgasm. You can carry on lovemaking. Mm. It's not the pinnacle. You know, it's just a mm. part of, of the mm. whole thing. And I wonder about technique, his technique. I wonder if he knows what you like. Because what you enjoy changes from one moment to the next. And it certainly changes from one person to the next. So it's very difficult. Nobody has got so much experience that they they you know they just know what the other one's going to want instantly you do have to do a bit of showing them or telling them mm. what you're interested in i mean if all else fails then you know sex therapy is a really good idea because that would help you to talk to one another and deal with this issue yeah, yeah. do you think that's going to be a difficult conversation though because you know this guy might not realize anything's the husband might not realize anything's wrong and then emma's like hey by the way i think we should go to sex therapy he might be like, whoa. Well, I, I think it would be fair enough to, to say what sounds as if it's true. I, I wanted to have a talk with you about this because I'm a little bit anxious during sex. And I would maybe, you, you know, maybe I would improve my confidence. and Maybe you would improve yours too if we mm. had a bit of help. Yeah, went together. Is she being unfaithful by not telling him what she's doing every time they have sex? Of course not. Yeah. Just wanted to get that out there as well, because yeah. that was the main question at the end. Am I being unfaithful? Well, no, that's, I'm not, that's why I said, I said at the beginning, there's nothing wrong with doing this, because I, yeah. I think, you, you know, it, it, uh, she's doing what she can to be kind to him, isn't she? Mm, yeah, exactly. Waiting for him to fall asleep. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't want to hurt his feelings. Yeah. But you know, that you, you, that's so sad that they're in a, in a position where it's kind of a bit false. It's, it's not totally honest. And I mean, it's not unfaithful, but it's not totally mm. honest. And it would be nicer if they, if they had a relationship where they could talk to one another, not be focused on climaxing. I mean, I, you know, you know, I've seen lots and lots of couples where one of them can't climax and it's often to do with, with being, really worried about the other one feeling that Mm. they haven't done a good enough job 
of arousing them. And, it, you know, if everyone took responsibility for their own arousal and we weren't all focused on the other person kind of mind reading what we want, we'd have a lot more fun and it wouldn't be so pressured. Mm-hmm. And then th- these sorts of questions wouldn't wouldn't occur. I, I agree. And I think I just say, listen to that consent episode we did again. Mm-hmm. I thought there's some stuff in there that would that would help out mm-hmm. as well. Okay, this question is from Anonymous and they say, I want to feel more connected to my partner. I'm 29 and have struggled to feel anything with anyone I'm dating or sleeping with. Do you have any advice? Uh, this is from a, a chap as well, a man. Doesn't he, he, doesn't, he doesn't feel an emotional connection. Just says, I want to feel more connected to my partner. I struggle to feel anything with anyone I'm dating or sleeping with. Well, that could be anxiety or or it could just be that he doesn't feel anything for them. Um, mm. And it might be not having met the right person or it might be just that he doesn't want to be connected. Mm. So again, maybe listen to the asexuality episode. But, mm. but, you know, there are all sorts of reasons why you wouldn't. I mean, you know, how long have you known one another? Do you have anything in common? Are you too nervous to say what you're really feeling? What is going on here? If there's an enormous amount of anxiety, it's very difficult to feel close and connected when there's Mm. lots of anxiety floating around. And sometimes the anxiety actually emerges when you feel close to somebody. And some people respond to that by ending the relationship because it feels too overwhelming, Mm. which is really sad. When they get closer, they run. Yeah. They push further, and away. there are lots of people that do that. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, because definitely. it feels because it feels too close and too overwhelming, which is which is again really sad and too vulnerable. So there's more to this. Yeah. Do you think as well? It just reminded me as well of something that you said a few weeks ago, where it was like you know when I think it was Masters and Johnson, the those people who did all that sex research originally, <laughs> yeah. and they like wired everyone up, and they were like, yeah, the 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 bloke. He wasn't like the pleasure stuff wasn't really going off. What was going off for him was like fo- hyper focus mm. and hyper like it's all about performance and stuff. Mm. Do you think that's maybe what could be going on here as well? It's like, yeah. I'm not feeling anything. I'm not enjoying because I, I can't enjoy because I've got this performance anxiety. I need to perform and all that sort of stuff. This question and the last one, it's very possible. Mm. I mean, mm. so an awful lot of people don't really feel very much at all. I mean, they're aware they're aroused and they might be enjoying the arousal as well. And they are aware when they climax, but they really don't get the all the fun of the building arousal and edging, you know, get, getting really aroused, letting it go a bit, going again, getting a bit more arousal, you know, mm. building it up gradually. And that that's particularly fun for men. The, the gradual build, the, the mm. sort of edging, the simmering. But it doesn't really happen if the focus is on outcome, if the focus is on getting in there, getting an erection, having intercourse and climaxing. Because, mm. uh, you, you know, and then at some point along the way, making making your partner climax as well. It's mm. all, it's, there's lots of jobs to do and it's hardly a relaxed experience. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like when you go into that tick box, it's like, okay, get hard, right. Keep the erection, right. Don't come though. Yeah. And it's like, okay, fine. It's like, and make sure your partner does. And you're like, okay, fine. And it's like, oh, but also when you're really focused on all that, make sure you're enjoying yourself as well, Mm. which is obviously, but that does feel like it's lowest priority of the list. And people maybe don't even think they're doing that because they're like, well, if I achieve all the other things, then I'll naturally just enjoy myself because that's what I'm... Yeah, and a lot of people go along with the idea that they're always interested in sex and always ready for it, whether they actually feel that or not, because that ticks another box. That ticks a masculinity box. It's a masculine duty to perform. Exactly, yeah. You're you're a bloody bloke. You've got to stand to attention when called upon. Yeah. 
and you know yeah and, and not stop until you're until you've discharged your volley that's disgusting <laughs> yeah it is really isn't it sorry about that but the thing the thing is smart that, that you know i'm always talking about people making love for their own interests not worrying about what the other person's thinking consensually by the way i always feel like i have to say that i know that sounds mad but anyway I no know it doesn't sound know, mad they, yeah so no. consensually but you're right people taking care of your own your own pleasure because you're the only one who can know how to do that sorry do go on not not taking your pleasure but being concerned with your own interest and that yes. isn't even pleasure that's just what's going but just interested in what's going on for you right and then if you're doing that and not worrying about the other person and not sort of checking in whether they're all right and not thinking you know was that a frown? Are they enjoying this? Have I done something wrong? If you're not doing all of that and you're just thinking about your own experience, suddenly you are able to communicate sexually and start having a really fantastic experience because you're really laid back, that you're not feeling mm. this sense of huge responsibility with all these jobs to do. And it's just wonderful. And people then start having really great sex. But it's when you take away the outcomes and the anxiety and then everything mm. changes. And it's really difficult. And it, and it seems so counterintuitive when you say to people don't talk to one another don't you know at this stage at this early stage don't do anything just just concentrate on what's going on for you yeah they find that really hard but at some point when they twig why it works and it does start working then all the sexual communication really begins mm. sort of mm. almost spontaneously so it's so it's definitely a good thing to do yeah, absolutely. Well, that about wraps that up. And that about wraps up this episode. Thank you so much again to Dr. Leila Hussain for taking the time to speak to us. Thank you to Kate Campbell for continuing to turn up every week. <laughs> thanks, Mum. And thanks you, Dix. And thank you guys as well, you listeners. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week for some more real sex education. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Real Sex Education, which is hosted by Diggory Waite and Kate Campbell. The show is produced by Diggory Waite, and the executive producer is Claire Broughton. The Real Sex Education is a hat-trick podcast. This podcast is based on the real-life relationship between Diggory Waite and his mother, accredited sex therapist Kate Campbell. The show is therefore inspired by, but otherwise unrelated to, the TV show Sex Education. But yes, Diggory does wish his mother was played by Gillian Anderson. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.